Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Life of the Lens podcast. I am your host, Yogi Roth, and fired up for today's conversation. First and foremost, got to thank everybody for listening. We had some really fun conversations, some really cool experiences. Father's Day week was epic as we had uh, really a lot of people behind the scenes talking about the film Life in a Walk, and it was culminated by a really fun conversation with my dad. Uh, the responses were great. Keep the reviews coming on iTunes. We appreciate it. It keeps it moving. We actually just became new and noteworthy on iTunes. So that's a big deal, I think, in the podcast world. Still a rookie at it, but we're getting after it. Um, So thanks again for all the love. Now, today's guest is a woman by the name of Alexis Jones. If you have social media or follow sports or the Elite 11, um, you definitely know who she is. If not, um, stay tuned in because her knowledge, her wisdom, and most importantly, her path, uh, for charging has really defined this podcast. You know, it's called Life Without Limits. We're trying to explore what it means to be human. And ultimately, um, I think it means going for it. So we're going to talk to Alexis Jones about a lot of things. And uh, I cannot wait to hear your comments. So let's not waste any time and bring in my dear friend and now first time podcaster with this podcast, Alexis Jones. Welcome to the show, Alexis. Thank you for having me, Yo, because I'm so pumped. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? This is awesome. I mean, we, we got to be honest with the listeners. We've talked about podcasting together for, I don't know, two or three years now. <laughs> oh, at least. Like, I feel like we're always going back and forth with like, this would be the best idea for a podcast, but leave it up to you to like actually make it happen. So congrats. Oh, I guess. I mean, I literally think that after probably 90% of our phone conversations, we're like, dude, that should have been recorded. That would have been an awesome podcast. Like, Let's go do this. <laughs> And uh, so now today we get to do that. So I'm, uh, I'm pumped that we get to have this type of conversation. So thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Awesome. Awesome. So on this podcast, if, if you've listened to them before, and for any of the returners who have, have heard this, these conversations, I really have one rule, and it's to ask questions that I literally don't know the answers to. And for you, Alexis, this is one of the hardest conversations <laughs> to prepare for, because I've known you now since, I mean, you're the first friend I ever met in California. Uh, when I got to USC in graduate school, now that's just like, I'm 22. So that's like 12 years ago. And, uh, I feel like we know a lot about one another. Um, so this was, this was not the easiest one to get ready for. I'm nervous. <laughs> I feel like you're <laughs> no, going to ask me something that I feel like you already know everything about me. So yeah, I can imagine it would be hard to ask questions that you don't know answers to. Yeah, well, hopefully this isn't a 10-minute podcast, so we'll, we'll see where we go. Um, I'd love to start, because I'd like to start here, is what's your recollection of, of how we met for the first time? <laughs> um, you were in my grad school class, and um, I walked over. Well, we got done with the class, and they were talking about books and stuff, and I was like a super poor grad student, and I remember walking over. You were the cutest guy in class, and I walked over, and I said, hey, uh, do you want to split um, books with me, you know, so we can like buy them together and then we can share them and you didn't hesitate. So that was <laughs> the beginning of best friendship for the past 12 years. Yeah, no, I remember that night very well. I was like, man, California's awesome. Like my first friend is this like really cool, beautiful woman. Oh, grad school is way cooler than undergrad. And, uh, and I knew we'd be, we'd be uh, long friends for, for a really long time. So Thanks for doing that. Now, now, fast forward, and you've done so many unique things. I mean, not only did you graduate from undergrad at SC, you got your master's degree, you uh, went on Survivor and thrived there. 
But that was really just the beginning for you as you started multiple companies that we're going to get into. Um, I Am That Girl, which is phenomenally inspired. She's almost a million women now in over 50 countries around the globe. Um, your new adventure uh, with Protector, which is speaking to athletes around the globe as well, which we're going to dive into. You've been an actress, you've been a speaker, you've been an executive producer and an epic documentary. Um, so all that being said, Alexis, what area brings you the most joy? Good question. Um, it's it's interesting. I think recently I've been kind of trying to follow the through line of my life. Because like you said, I mean, there's so many different things. And I think the most awkward question for me always within the first, like, three seconds of meeting someone is when they say, so what do you do? And I yeah. have that awkward, you know, like, I don't know, deer in the headlights because I'm like, where do I begin? Um, but what I'm realizing is that the through line is storytelling, like, that's the thing that lights me up. And, and I've gotten to do it in a lot of different ways, like you said, like getting to an executive produce a movie, getting to get up on stage and have conversations with people. I think even as an entrepreneur, really my greatest asset is telling the story, presenting the possibility of what I think could happen in the world if X, Y, and Z was brought to fruition. So that's probably the thing that, like, lights me up the most. And, of course, you and I daydream about one day – being actors and winning an Oscar. So clearly that's on the list and that's just another form of storytelling. But I think that's probably the thing that I get most jacked about. Yeah. Well, that's definitely going to happen. No, no doubt. Um, so what do you think <laughs> makes a good story or, or a good storyteller? Cause this is what you do, right? You fly all over the world and you mm -hmm. give talks. So take us behind the curtain a little bit. Sure. I think that it's, it's interesting because so often, and I started, you know, public speaking at a really young age, and I feel like so many people, and especially like quote unquote adults, right? They would always say like, but you're just a kid. Like, what is it, you know, what if you haven't had enough life experience or you haven't accomplished enough or you haven't, whatever it was, fill in the blank, um, you know, to be like out there speaking on a stage, giving other people advice. And what I found was that as a storyteller, I think your greatest asset is tapping into the human condition, um, it's tapping into those universal truths around redemption and forgiveness and resilience and humility and overcoming pride and love and love lost and all of the things I think that all of us endure on a regular basis. And for me, being able to tap into any story that I tell, and I think that so often storytellers miss the point because they're more concerned about feeding their ego and telling a story as opposed to telling a story solely for providing an opportunity for people to peek into their own lives. And to me, storytelling is a tool. And it's a tool if used with that level of humility to recognize that you are but a vehicle to bring someone on a journey to help them discover something even more unique about their own life. And I think when you have that kind of surrender, and again, whether it's speaking at the White House or the Girl Scouts or just hanging out with a friend who like really needs support and love, to me, it's always like, how can I tell whether it's my own stories or someone else's and to be a vehicle so that someone can tap into something inside of themselves that they need in that moment? That's kind of the magic for me I, behind the curtain. Yeah. Well, look, I've seen you talk, gosh, countless times um, from presentations right back in the day and Sarah Benet Weiser's class at SC in grad school or you know, speaking now to the Elite 11 quarterbacks and the documentary feature that uh, will be, have, well, have already aired uh, when this conversation airs. Um, curious to you, what was the first story that you remember being told? 
because you have a way about the way that you share your story. I mean, you've got this amazing way to have the, the listener lean in without feeling like, oh, my God, she's pushing me or dragging me in. Like, it's very subtle. Um, so I'm curious if you had a story that you were told as a kid or was somebody this epic storyteller that you heard all the time and growing up in Texas? It's funny you say that. I, w- I was literally like sitting here grinning, thinking about like, what stories? And of course, being from Texas, I think that from a really young age, it's kind of embarrassing, but we take like an immense amount of pride, you know, in our state that we were the only state that was ever its, its own country at one point. But I think I remember my dad, who, you know, is a native Texan, um, talking about the men and women who fought to create Texas, to give us what we have today. And it it sounds silly, but it's probably like a myth, a fable that like every little kid in Texas like grows up hearing, but just this idea in there. And and I don't even know, honestly, if this is a story my dad made this up. But basically he was telling the story of the Alamo. And there's this moment where, you know, one of the guys in the Alamo, you know, and they're surrounded by the Mexican army. And it's just one of those like moments in which you know, like there's no way you're getting out alive. And one of the guys somehow sneaks out in the middle of the night through the Mexican army, like risks his life, you know, to go in and to try and get help. And, you know, he goes over to the other states and he's like, yo, we have this problem. Like we're surrounded, you know, we need your help. And basically the guys look at him and they're like, yeah, we're not going to send anyone, you know? And so he's sitting here thinking like, well, am I going to be the only guy who survives? Because I got out, right? So like this incredibly lucky, he got chosen. He could really start a whole new life. And instead, like this guy fights to get back through the Mexican army, to sneak back through, to go back into the Alamo, knowing that he's going to die with all of the guys that he's been fighting shoulder to shoulder to. And it was something about that story of like the pride of Texas. I think that we all get fed in different doses, but that was probably the first story that I remember being a little kid and being like, wow, that kind of gravitas to your life (laughs) to like stand for something that's so much bigger than you that some five-year-old little girl, how many years later, you know, is sitting there in wonderment over that kind of story. Um, And I think that was the first moment that like, I remember like my heart racing and thinking like, I want, I, I want that. I want that kind of conviction, that kind of passion in my life. And probably the first time I saw the power of storytelling, that you can actually transform someone's belief system mm-hmm. just with, like, someone else's story, that you can inspire a depth of bravery that they don't even know exists inside of them. I don't know yeah, if I was know. thinking all of that when I was five years old, but I just remember <laughs> being, like, mesmerized by this story and like having my dad tell it to me like over and over you know, every night at bedtime. Yeah. Well, I think if, if I unpack that, right. And knowing you, like we've already described really well to me, if I was going to describe you, like you are a fighter, you know? So if I was a psychoanalyzing you, I'd probably say, yeah, well, if that's the first story Alexis Jones was told. That's what she drew from it. Right. Of like standing shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, fighting for something that you believe in protecting the people you're around. And if we go the next layer, you've been, you've described how you've been raised many times in other articles. And you said you've been raised by wolves. And I think we should clarify that because they weren't actually, you didn't grow up in the wilderness, uh, but you've been around some really cool men in your life. Do you think now that, I mean, we're kind of just piecing this thing together, right? We're weaving it together. Here's this first story here. And now you have this wolf pack that kind of raises you as this Texas tomboy. Uh, 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's like it's so weird that we're talking about this because um, I think when I was like 13, I, you know, when you look up on those websites, you're like, what does your name mean? And my name, Alexis, actually means defender, um, mm-hmm. which I think is so relevant, right? I mean, like defender, protector, like that, that same idea. And to, to your point of being raised with wolves, I think growing up in a household with four older brothers and with obviously an incredible father that I, and it's a line I always use, but I always said that I was such a connoisseur of phenomenal men that I think when you have such fantastic experiences with so many um, respectful, love, passionate men, that it was, it was just so natural for me to gravitate to like impeccable men in my life. And now seeing it like the treasure chest of the guys, the best guy friends that I have in my life. And yeah, dude, I totally, I run with wolves and I run with the best. So how did those wolves let you not go to Texas and go to USC for grad school? Because you grew up in Austin. <laughs> I know my dad still holds, you know, the old five rose bowl. It's still like, it's still the worst heartbreak. Of, I know. I can't even talk about it because it brings tears to my eyes. My dad told me that he was like, of course, my daughter, you know, would be like the only girl who didn't get out of bed for three days because she was crying and was more heartbroken over that game than any boy she ever dated. Um, but yeah, it's still like the bane of my father's existence that I left Austin, went out to LA and, um, not only went out to LA, but like SC of all places. So I think he felt a little redemption when you, he wanted me. He was like, see, you chose poorly. Um, oh, that's cold. so yeah, I still, I, it's so cold, man. And my brother still give me a hard time about it. So every time I'm like, I'm not there yet. It just pisses okay, so- me off. They know it. <laughs> but, but two two part question. Number one, why SC? You know, was it a thing? If you're thinking about, okay, you're inspired by these stories of fighting, right? And SC number one is, uh, you know, a hub of epic stories. You know, historically, right? Whether it's George Lucas or, you know, who Steven Spielberg. I mean, epic storytellers uh, have come out of this place. The moniker of SC is fight on, right? So you're fighting shoulder to shoulder. Maybe there's a little, uh, who knows, a little uh, underlying element of reverse psychology going on there uh, but why sc and then what was that experience like for you because while you're there i believe it's your second year you create your first foundation called i am that girl yeah and by the way you're totally freaking me out you're like better than my therapist you're like and then fight on and then like i'm you're like literally leading my life together <laughs> it's totally scaring me um why sc so I mean, a lot of reasons. One, I, I wanted to be in California. So my two oldest brothers closest to me both went to school in California. I actually didn't even apply in Texas. So I knew I wanted to get out. And when I was looking at my options, USC had one of the best international relations programs, which at the time, I think I'd seen one too many Angelina Jolie movies because I like, was pretty certain I was going to be an international spy and wear skin-tight leather. Um, but... That was, that was the thing I was super passionate about, and SC had an incredible program for that. Of course, you know, I came from Texas football, and not just Texas football, but Westlake football. It was an incredible football program, so the thought of coming to a school who had, you know, a strong sense of camaraderie, but also an incredible football team, that was a big part of how I was raised, and... And then I wasn't mad about the fact that they gave me a scholarship. So, you know, there's a bunch of factors of why I chose SC, but what my experience was like, 
I mean, it was, it was a dream. I mean, I think I really did have like the quintessential fantastic college experience of, you know, I had incredible girlfriends. I was in a sorority. I was in Kappa Kappa Gamma. And um, my sophomore year, like you said, you know, I, I ended up doing two things. You mentioned Spielberg and George Lucas and SE being some of the best storytellers. And one of the things about USC and just the relationships that it has in Los Angeles and with, you know, these incredible directors and with the film industry was they basically presented an opportunity for two students to host a TV show where we would go and interview all the celebrities on the red carpet, which is insane for like a sophomore, like a 19 year old kid. It was like, especially being from Texas, it was a total dream. And I mean, obviously I got free movie and popcorn. So like that was epic on top of it. But um, I think between that of seeing like the power of the entertainment industry of storytelling. And then about a month or two later, I ended up having the courage to audition for the vagina monologue. It was progressive women's play. And it was really kind of a combination of those two things of, I think that was when I got like smashed in the face with a two by four of like, this is my passion. This is what I was built to do. Um, And then also the awareness piece, um, the activism piece that Evensler stands for. And so I went back to my sorority and you know the story, but um, sat down with six girls and I said, we have a lot of conversations about things that don't matter. So what if once a week we had conversations about things that did? And in that question, I Am That Girl was born. Um, Because those six girls showed up, and then six weeks later on campus, we had 347 girls showing up. And all of a sudden, it was kind of this, like, holy, like, what is going on? Like, you know, the Girl Scouts in, in high school, really, when we need them the most, when you're, like, displaced on some random college campus, and you're trying to figure out how to balance you know, you're like super cute boyfriend and, you know, get to class and hang out with your friends and get to the gym and like attempt to eat right. And, you know, all of these things. And I think that was kind of the, the special sauce of community of the power of community. And so, was it, and so that was kind of the birth of, I am that girl. So, so take me through the first, like that first meeting with like 370 girls. Like, is it like, I am that girl who also got screwed over by this guy in this fraternity, or is it, <laughs> I am that girl that was sexually harassed or like, what, what's that like? And you're 19, Alexis. Sure. like, you know, you, you're 32 now, you know, and it, there's clearly a different mentality between the two ages, but you were the face of, you're the face of that industry now and you were the face of it then. How did you deal with those conversations? Let alone, uh, I'm, not, I'm not really sure what they, what they are, but I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting because I think the intention was when I asked the question, what if we talked about things that did matter, you know, I would show up and the first one, there's only six of us. So I think I like printed out like some article of some like international issue that had just like, you know, been in the news and we start talking about it. And, you know, part of the um, vagina monologues was that I suddenly became aware of all of these global issues, especially presented like facing women. Um, so like acid burning in Iran and genital mutilation in Africa, like all these things that just felt so distant, like so hard for me to wrap my head around what that like reality of that could even be like. And so, you know, I think I printed out for that first one, like some article and I was like, I thought that we could all read this and talk about it. And the thing that was so shocking to me was, of course, you know, we read the article, we start talking about, but within 15 minutes to your point, 
all of a sudden I'm sitting there looking at six girls that I thought I knew really well that, you know, sorority sisters. And before you know it, one girl, you know, kind of raises a hand and is like, Hey, I know this is a little off topic, but like I've actually been struggling with an eating disorder for like two years. And like, I've never said anything to anyone. And like, I just, I don't really know what to do about it. And, you know, and all of a sudden we were like, wait, what you, you are like, how did we not know about that? And another girl kind of chimes in. She's like, yeah, actually like, I'm kind of struggling because I feel like this guy like really likes me and I don't know how to like tell him that I'm not interested, but like, I want to be friends. Like all of a sudden it became this safe space where girls were sharing what was really going on in their lives. And some of it was horrific, right? Some of it was, you know, I was sexually assaulted when I was 14 years old and I never told anyone anywhere from that to like, I totally have a crush on this boy in my class. And like, how do I ask him out? It was like the gamut of, I think what any college kid is going through. Um, and, and it's so tragic to me that we don't have like a life 101 class, you know, but like, where do you have not only support, but like answers to those kind of questions and, and have, a sanctuary where you can be honest and vulnerable and share your heart and ask for help and encouragement. And so, of course, I was like, you know, President Sample, uh, who was, you know, a president when we were there, um, I remember at one point he, you know, like came into one of the meetings and he was like, what, what in the, who, what is going on here? Because, you know, it wasn't an actual class, but we have almost 350 kids showing up and, he was like, what's going on here? And I remember like walking out in the hallway and saying, um, I hope you don't mind that we're like using this, like, I think it was like a science room or something. I don't even remember where it was because we kept outgrowing, you know, venues. And, and I said, um, you know, it's kind of crazy when all of a sudden you're like standing up in front of 350 people and like attempting to like make it up as you go along and being like, okay, why don't you get into small groups? And, you know, I wasn't expecting that kind of mob. But um, it was incredible to have, like, the president of our school, like, so much embrace what this was. Because I don't think any of us knew what it was going to turn into. You know, I don't think that if you would ask me when I was 19 years old, are you going to have an incredibly successful 501c3 with almost a million girls involved and chapters in 52 countries, I would have been like, you're crazy. I'm, I'm, you know, going to go to the local party and, like, hang out with my friends. Um, but that's kind of the beauty of, I think, those kind of, like, audacious ideas is allowing them to unfold the way that they're supposed to. You know, you said earlier you had a passion, and I'm assuming it was around performing, you know, regarding the vagina monologues and the, and the play that you were in. Wondering what it's like, number one, being, okay, 19, 20, 21 now, you're an undergraduate, you know, guiding these conversations, but also going through the same things. Because you're someone that I've always seen as, uh, you know, more mature. You know, I'm sure you've been told that a thousand times, right? We all have. Like, you're mature beyond your years or whatever it's been. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you to have to wear those hats? Uh, and, and maybe still have to do that, right? You're talking to people that had gone through or were going through at the time similar things, right? And, you know, you probably had questions of how do I ask this guy out or what is going on um, with my English class or whatever the heck it was. Uh, but they're also looking to you for like the person with the answers, I'm assuming. And I, I would think that's got to be like a great piece of armor to wear when you're in front of 300, 400, 500 women. But then when you are on your own, you take it off, you 
got to be a little exhausted. And I'm wondering how that experience was for you, if that's even accurate, and then how you dealt with you when you were going through that, if you were. Yeah, gosh, you're good. You're on right now. You're asking some really good questions. Um, like, as you're asking these, I'm, like, shaking my head. I'm, like, I don't know. I'm, like, panicking that I'm not going to come up with anything remotely as articulate. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think at that age, looking back, um, like you said, like putting on this veneer, you know, and I think that with my friends, and I mean starting in like middle school, right, like middle school and high school, like everyone has like that girl that, that you know, within their fear, uh, peer group and or, you know, with dudes, um, that like that's always the person you go to to ask your questions and for whatever reason you're entrusting them to give you some kind of intelligent response. Um, so I think I'd always kind of been that to my group of girlfriends. Um, and in at USC, I, I felt like I really wore that well. Um, I didn't wear it authentically, though. And that's only something that I can, like, look back on and say that's been a huge part of my maturation um, is having the humility to not have all the answers and to absolutely fall apart and have that be okay. And I think at the time, I did a really, really good job of, like, convincing everyone that I totally had my shit together. You know, like, that would, you know, my girlfriends would be like, we struggle, but you never do. You're perfect. You know, and there was something about that, like, almost like Barbie, you know, this, like, untouchable that, like, fed my ego. But the truth was, behind closed doors, clearly I was struggling with everything that all these chicks were talking about. Um, and I think it actually ended up being very lonely and isolating um, because I didn't have the courage to be vulnerable and say, like, yeah, I get it because I'm struggling with it too. I was always trying to, like, respond with this, like, really great, you know, bit of advice for everyone. And it was incredibly freeing. And I don't know exactly at what age, but a couple years later when it dawned on me that nobody has the expectation that I have all the right answers except for me. And I ended up at one point writing a blog called Alexis Jones, The Fraud. And this was like pivotal moment in my life, but also in my career where I basically like publicly apologized to everyone for my inability to be brave enough to be honest about my own struggles. And I think that was a real tipping point because, oh my gosh, like the hundreds of emails and texts and phone calls from people that I'd known since middle school, you know, reaching out saying, oh my gosh, of everything you've ever put out into the world, thank you, because now you're relatable. And I think what we don't understand is when we pretend to be perfect and we, and we hold that veneer as truth, we miss the opportunity to be relatable. And really all anybody wants that I know now when they're struggling, when they're searching for answers, all they want is someone who will sit in the darkness next to them and hold their hand and just be present. And if you can just hold space for that person, like that's all anyone is really after. Like that's invaluable. And I think I'm in a place now where like, I don't even pretend like capital. I feel like every time you and I talk, I'm like, I'm failing at everything. Now it's like the opposite, you know, but um, I don't know. Now I'm so willing to like open my heart and just sit there and listen to someone. And what I found is like, that's exponentially more powerful 
than like having all the answers. Yeah. You know, I can remember talking to my first like TV executive. I was like 23 and I was like, what makes it great? Like what makes you awesome on TV? And he goes, relatability and likability. And I think you've always had those, um, which is why you continue to crush it. Um, but you, you just referenced um, an element of loneliness at, at times, right? And having to deal with it. You know, a, a year or two years later, you went to like the loneliest television show in the history of loneliness. Like you went on Survivor, <laughs> where like you're it's literally every individual for themselves. <laughs> Um, but you fought your ass off and it was fun to watch every week. Um, I, we could talk about that for, for this entire episode, but curious about, okay, now if we're, we're just stringing and this little red thread through your narrative here of, you know, of sharing your story of, okay, you learn about fighting as a kid. It's all about the Alamo, right? And where we are locking arms and arm. And then you create this, it's not a movement yet, but it's this gathering of people around. I am that girl. And then you were like, no, 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 I'm just going to go rogue and I'm going to go solo because I can prove <laughs> that I can go win this. Because deep down, I think you're a ridiculous competitive, ridiculously competitive individual. So explain that in that context. Oh, man. I mean, it's funny. It's like that's where I get that stereotype of guys always being like, you're such a guy in a girl's body. Because I'm not just like a competitive person. I'm, I'm literally the most competitive person that I know, like to sometimes an inappropriate level when you're playing with like third graders. Um, I realized was that we have a sixth gear that we don't even know exists inside of us as human beings. And I think especially being in the first world, all of our senses get so dulled, right? Because we don't have to like go out and, you know, fend for our own food and we're not trying, you know, there's not predators necessarily like in the jungle and, all these different things. And, and so for me, I think I, I walked away realizing that I was so much tougher than I ever even knew. And that the resilience that, that, that exists inside of you when you're confronted with your definition of impossible every single day. I remember day 19 was like my breaking point. And I had had at that point one meal, one and a half meals in 19 days. And you're exhausted and you're not sleeping and we were getting attacked by rats every night and like would wake up and have like 150 mosquito bites. Like it's a hundred thousand times worse than they would ever show on television. And I remember on day 19 being like, I cannot keep going. And I think that very rarely do we actually hit a threshold in our life and our personal life and our professional life. They come there's a handful of times in your life, like when you lose someone that you love very dearly. Um, you know, there's a handful of times where like emotionally you're confronted with something that's so overwhelming. And I think I was emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually so cashed by day 19 that I remember being like, okay, I'm done. There's no way, you know, that I can continue. And there was something really invigorating about every day waking up being like, I'm still here. Okay, we're still going, you know, and lasted, what, another 33 days um, total. And so, yeah, I just, I, I think that for me, it, it just showed me what I was capable of. And I wish that everyone, not that everyone needs to go on a deserted island and, like, lose 31 pounds in 33 days and, you know, go through, like, necessarily the intensity of that. But I wish that everyone had the opportunity 
to do something that was so drastically outside of their comfort zone that revealed a version of them that I think is truly only discovered like under fire. Wow. Well, you know, I don't know the answer to what it feels like to get attacked by rats, but I don't want to ask it because I don't want that <laughs> nightmare, to be honest. It's but so I, horrible. Yeah, yeah, no, keep moving on. Uh, if anybody wants that answer, they can send you a tweet. Um, but, but I do want to know um, that feeling you talked about going for it, right? I mean, to me, that's like, as an athlete, I can remember, you know, you can push yourself to places that um, either you didn't think you could go or only you thought you could go. And now that, you know, you're not in survivor land anymore, or I'm not playing sports anymore. How do you get that, um, uh, that high, you know, that place where you get uncomfortable, uh, maybe every day for you, whatever your practice is, what is it? So you can continue to grow because you're in a place now where you speak all the time. You easily can go cookie cutter and knock it out the same spiel show up. Doesn't matter who the audience is and away you go, but I've seen you operate and you don't. So wondering what your practice is to get yourself to a mindset where, you're like, wow, okay, now let's go further and push it further and take another run at something that I have not, you know, done before. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's honestly, I think it's something that you and I share. And I think it's something that is like really precious about my relationship with you is, is because we are so insatiably hungry um, for life, for everything that like we're never, ever going to be satisfied with status quo. And, and I think that part of that hunger is, you know, nature versus nurture. Like, I think part of that is just nature. But I also think the nurture side of that is that, you know, every time we hop on the phone, it's like, what's the latest book you've read? What's the latest thing you're doing? Like, how are you, you know, really stepping outside of your comfort zone? And so for me, you know, I try to be conscious of those, the different ways in which I get fed. So again, like the mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, like how am I intentionally tapping in to each of those? And it's not necessarily a science, but for me, like journaling every morning is like imperative of just like it sets me in a completely different mindset when I wake up with an intention as opposed to when I wake up and I'm reactionary. Um, when I wake up and immediately I'm like, oh, my God, I forgot about that email. And like from bed, I'm like responding to people and then immediately I jump up and, you know, I'm on someone else's schedule. And so I think the first one is I'm so conscious about trying to be as intentional as I possibly can in my life. And I think that that starts every single day. Um, and again, I think it looks different for everyone, whether it's meditation or yoga or praying or journaling. Like for me, I like the activity of, of writing. Um, but I would say that's kind of like where I tap into like the emotional and like spiritual side of things. And like to be really candid, even this morning I was journaling and you know, I had like a very heartbreaking experience, you know, in my early 20s. And I kind of had this epiphany when I was journaling about the fact that like, I've wanted to have a conversation with this individual for a long time and reached out and, you know, wasn't given that opportunity. Um, and so I feel like in a weird way, I've like longed for this moment and this like conversation where we can confront it. And, you know, the truth is, as I was journaling this morning, um, I just had this like really sweet interaction with myself where I was saying like in my journal, I was writing and I was like, you know what? Like, actually I want to apologize to you. Like you've been waiting for this apology from someone else. But the truth is like, I am your keeper and I am your protector. And I allowed you to think that you weren't important and that you weren't, you know, all these things. And like, you know, 
we are like, I literally started bawling this morning. So I think one is like challenging yourself emotionally to actually have a relationship with yourself because it's so easy to project out into the world, all the things that like we think we want and need from other people, whether it's celebrity or success or fit, all the things that we think we want when the truth is what we, I think only ever really want is our own attention um, and the love that we so often don't give ourselves. And so that's from like the emotional, mental side of things. Obviously, I have a, like a ferocious appetite for literature. So like reading is a huge way in which I like really get out of my comfort zone and like experience someone else's story, especially like stories of like heroism and stuff. Like I like geek out over that kind of stuff. Um, and then third, I think like the physical aspect is really important. And so, you know, you ask me a different month, I'll give you a different answer. Like currently <laughs> you and I were laughing about this before, but you know, I like recently got like pretty serious into boxing, which I haven't done since like in probably, you know, five years, 10 years. Um, and it is absolutely kicking my ass um, and challenging me in a way that I haven't been physically this challenged in a really long time. Um, so for me, it's just, like I said, it's being really thoughtful and proactive about making sure that you're never content where you are and that you're always, like, striving for something more. Yeah, well, I love all that, clearly. You know, we're part of a group together where, uh, you know, we, we challenge these young quarterbacks to always strive for more, right? They're talking about the Elite 11. Have you ever heard of the Elite 11? It's the premier quarterback. We call it a competition in the country. Basically, it's a 1,000 quarterbacks in every region. So we had 14 regional opportunities for anybody, anywhere, for free, on behalf of Nike. They come out to the location, and they compete to be one of the best dudes in the world. And then we bring them all together um, as a group of 24 in Los Angeles, and then we bring the top 12 to Nike's campus for the Elite 11 finals, where the Elite 11 and MVP get named out of those 12 quarterbacks. And for the last three years, Alexis has come to speak to the quarterbacks. And I want to know, um, I know you have, a, you have a blast, and you crush it every year, um, but why, not necessarily why you keep coming back. You keep coming back because, you know, we can influence the influencers, and the quarterbacks can influence the linemen, and they can influence fans, and da 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 But what about that experience don't I know about you and, and what you get from showing up and talking to the dudes of dudes over the last three years in the sport of football? I mean, honestly, you kind of, you know, mentioned it. It, it. Like the truth is, like you said, these are the dudes of all dudes. Like I know you have some crazy stats about like how many of these guys go on to be Heisman Trophy winners and how them end up being, you know, the best quarterbacks in the entire NFL. And so for me, I think a couple things. One is – being able to have access to those guys and to challenge them in a different way because they're so challenged physically. We know that. And one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen of all three years I've done it um, was this past year, um, just a couple weeks ago, when I got done speaking and Trent got up and he said, you know, she, she's referring to you as the cure. The whole country is talking about you like you're the problem especially with all of the sexual assault, domestic abuse happening on college campuses. And he said, but you're the cure. And when Trent said, it is dawning on me right now that my dream of winning a Super Bowl, which he did, no big deal, he was like, was a lame goal. Like, 
there's so much more to strive for so much more, like to be an incredible father, to be an incredible dad, to like be an incredible dude, whereas football is what you do. And so I think for me getting to come in and make those distinctions for them and to offer them the opportunity to choose um, to be different and to not just be the guy who can get up and throw a ball really well and who's really fast and can run and is, you know, going to sign with the biggest universities in the country and go on, you know, to ideally, you know, first-round draft picks. Like, yes, amazing, great dream, but, like, I think my dad always instilled in me this belief, as we talked about in the very beginning, of, like, fighting for something that's bigger than you. That dream's actually accomplishable. So being able to come in and present them with an opportunity to participate in something that's bigger than them and for them to recognize that their platform and, you know, all the things that they're going to be able to do because they are the dude on campus, um, watching those lights turn on, honestly, is like so incredibly rewarding when you come walking in and it's all guys and you're the only girl in the room and they're like, first off, why is this chick talking to us about manhood? You know, and, and slowly watching these lights go on in their head as they realize that they are capable of being so much more than how we've narrowly defined them as an incredible quarterback um, to broaden that definition and to include all the other attributes that actually make them inherently valuable in our society. Um, like that's the stuff that turns me on. And then, I mean, come on, I, I get to geek out with like, dudes that's like my favorite thing ever I get to be in like the proverbial locker room and I get to you know late night grab beers and hang out with you guys it's like a dream it's like summer camp it's the best <laughs> how will you know um how will you know if it worked I mean you come in you, you give this amazing speech right we tell a great documentary um you get other gigs out of it right you've spoken all over the country from Missouri to UCLA SC UW I mean they're awesome they're all over AlexisJones.com if you want to watch her do her thing or, or watch the Elite 11 film that just came out. But, you know, you walk out of there and you're charging like we all are. Like This is literally one of the coolest things, if not the coolest things we do for the last couple of years at the Elite 11. But it's, you know, one hour and maybe it spills over to a couple hours with conversations on the side afterwards. But, like, what's a win for you? Like, how do you know that um, that time was bigger than just – the kids going back to the room being like, whoa, that was awesome. Because they're going to wake up the next day and throw a touchdown pass. And then a year from now, they're going to get redshirted. And three years from now, might win a Heisman. And they're going to be at a bunch of parties. They're going to get love from everywhere. Their Instagram is going to multiply by, you know, hundreds of thousands potentially. Um, what does a win look like for you? Um, I don't know. I, I feel like for me that the work that I do in – I feel like, again, you and I have talked about this, but for me, it's, it's not about like revolutionizing an entire generation of young guys, you know, and I think like the 19 year old version of me would have been like, I'm creating protector to revolutionize the world. And truthfully, I think a win for me is to be able to do this work and come in and ideally inspire, ideally encourage. And like I said, present this new way of being, but like, Truthfully, I think it has to end there. I think the minute that I start looking at what a win is for me, that, like, I've siphoned off the ability of just being a vehicle for something to flow through me that's bigger than me. Because I don't think it's something that's necessarily measurable, you know? And, and maybe in 10 years, I run into one of those guys and they say, you know, we'll never forget, I was at this party once, you know? And 
instead of disrespecting this girl, like, you know, I took her home in a cab. Like, sure, great, amazing. And it's always incredibly rewarding to get done and have the boys come up and, like, hug me and, like, be in tears and, like, sure, it feels amazing. But, like, truthfully, I think when you sign up to be in the business of people and when you sign up to move mountains and to, you know, be an activist and to attempt to, like, push humanity further, I think you have to be okay just walking in a room and having a conversation and having that be enough. And if it impacts someone and if someone's soul is confronted by truth and they're never again the same, amazing. But, like, I'm not keeping score on that. So, like, what a win is for me, a win is can I have the courage to get up and die to my ego long enough to allow whatever is going to come out of my mouth to, to touch these guys and to the degree that it impacts their life. What a gift that I get to be a tool in that. But as far as like shifting their behavior, I don't know. I just, I trust that we're all put on the planet to help leave it a little better than when we got here. And I just kind of have to have faith that that's happening. And like you said, keep trucking. You know, we, we train football players to dominate, right? To compete, to never say no, never say die, right? To physically um, conquer their opponent, right? With those, this is vernacular used in offense and defensive line, you know, drills outside in the field, right? This is used in pregame speeches and not against it. You know, I subscribe to it. I've been told it, I've used it. Um, but we, Sometimes I think, you know, we obviously we, we don't want them to use that type of, uh, you know, use, use that language in other areas of their life, right? You don't force yourself on anyone else. You know, you don't dominate another individual in a public setting, let alone a female. What have you seen in your research and your experience of being on these campus and having these conversations with real athletes, real student athletes who are trained in one way to be, you know, a wolf, for instance? right? But need to be a gentleman um, when they take their helmet off. What have you seen there in terms of a shift from this generation being aware of, oh my God, like I, I know this is not cool, even though society thinks that I'm the dude, I should get all the girls, I should party super hard. I, it's okay to be a jerk and disrespect people, if, if, if any, because you, I can say from a man's perspective what I'm seeing, but you're seeing it with a different lens. Yeah, I definitely, I mean, I've never been so inspired by a generation as I am right now. And having spent the past two years in locker rooms is I think this is an incredibly emotionally intelligent generation of men that is very unlike any other generation before. Um, So for me, I think they're very receptive when you come in and, and like I said, you present these scenarios and there's such a lack of education around sex ed. I mean, I just posted something today that let me get this right, 93% of boys interact with porn, 21% of them interact with it every single day, and only 22 states actually teach sex ed. So for me, what I found when I come into a locker room and we have conversations about, like you, all day long compete and dominate and conquer and do all of those things on a field, amazing. It's what makes you a dude. Like, it's what makes you so good at what you do. But now... I feel like I get to come in and equip them with how do you turn that off? Because there's a time and place of when that's appropriate. And there's a time and place in which that's actually really dangerous. 
um, especially when you're engaging with those kind of qualities with a woman. And so if we're not equipping these guys to be able to know the difference of those scenarios and be able to simultaneously, just like when they're in the locker room, exercising those qualities to also exercise patience and grace and gentleness, and love, like they have to be able to switch gears. And I think up until now, we haven't really put a huge emphasis on teaching guys how to switch gears. And so my thing is, why is everybody so shocked that we have the rampant sexual assault, domestic abuse statistics that we have when nobody is educating men or women, boys or girls, about sex, about healthy relationships, about consent, um, and so for me, I'm seeing a huge shift when I come into these locker rooms and we start having these candid conversations with these guys and all of a sudden, like these guys want to be good guys, you know? And so when you tell them, let me give you, let me give you some, some skills, some tools, and, and they're incredible athletes. So like who takes direction better than these guys? So I feel incredibly hopeful that continuing this kind of work and watching these guys evolve into a new version of manhood that is so much more broad than like how many chicks you can bang and how much money you make. And, you know, I think that this generation is like sincerely cares um, and they're totally peaked and ready, I think, to be given all of the tools on how to best do that. Yeah, I can remember being at a screening at a documentary um, that was about the rampant uh, sexual abuse and violence on college campuses from the Greek life and athletes. And I, I was standing in the back because it was so packed. And I cried three times, standing up, getting elbowed, because people were coming in and out. I, I didn't have a seat. I got there a little late. And I'm sitting there bawling. I'm like, God, like, number one, heart is broken for every victim. Two, thankfully, like we're, we're trying to do something with the Elite 11 in terms of educating this next generation of, of superstar athlete. But then the movie ends and we have a Q&A and I can remember asking, okay, so what's going on in the athletic departments? What do you, what, you know, how are we having this conversation? And nobody there had an answer. And I was there with a bunch of producers, with a bunch of people involved with the film. And I'm not calling them out. I'm just saying the truth. And when I went out in the hallway afterwards for a little like post movie snack, the amount of discussions that were about screw athletes, we hate these kids, they're a bunch of punks. It made me sick. And I was the only like representer there of like the jock community, I guess you could say. And sure. for me, like, and you know my story, but a, a ball saved my life and it has saved many uh, people's lives. And I think that when we look at call it 85 scholarship student athletes in a major power five football team. Um, yeah, there are a couple bad apples. There's no doubt, but there's also a lot of kids that are trying to do good. And I do think that the rap around athletes, um, they've earned it, is, is negative at times in terms of, hey, you're going to be broke after two years in the National Football League and out of a job. Um, there are ridiculous amounts of sexual violence that occur in the league, in college football. And they make me sick to my stomach. This Baylor situation makes you want to throw up everywhere. Um, but there's also young men that we see all across the country um, that you speak to that are saying, no, 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 don't do this protect her. We're going to stand up for this. And I don't think that story is being told. And, and I want to transition to um, your next phase, because here you are with this great company. I am that girl. you got this badass book, which we'll link in this blog post. I am that girl. Um, you've done all these great things and you can keep charging in this world. And why not get to 2 million, to 10 million, to 20 million, right? Why not have a network and be the next Oprah 
but you pivot and say, you know what, I'm actually going to create a new company and start from scratch. And I know how hard it is. And it's going to be called Protector. And this foundation is going to be about literally talking about how men can be the answer. So where does that start? Why do it? And where are you now? Well, why do it? I mean, because you gave me an opportunity to come and speak at Elite 11. I mean, that was, that was the moment. You know, I would always tell people that I truly believe I was put on the planet to empower and protect girls and women. Obviously, like you said, you know, I, I built an entire nonprofit um, with my co-founder, Emily Greener. And, you know, we were out in the world doing all this stuff. And it was amazing. Um, but it wasn't until I stood in a room full of men and I saw the deep empathy and the compassion and the bravery of them wanting to actually participate in this conversation that we're all having about them. And, you know, I gave my best friend a peace sign and was like, yo, you should continue running and crushing I Am That Girl because there's this other that I feel like I have to go and do. And so first off, you, you know this, but you get credit for Protector because it had never dawned on me that we can't possibly inspire an entire generation and see social change happening if we're only preaching to half the sky, that we have to include men into the conversation because nothing will ever change. And that was kind of that epiphany. And again, it was because of, I saw these lights going on in these guys and this like very sincere desire to be part of the solution and not just be part of the problem. And like you said, I mean, are there bad apples in sports? Absolutely. They're bad apples in life. And by the way, I don't envy these incredible athletes because they have the highest false accusations from girls and women of any other constituency, of any other group of people. Athletes are the ones who have the most false accusations, which, which, by the way, ruin their lives forever, even if they're just accusations. So I think I'm, I'm like you. I'm like equally protective over these guys who have not only the desire to be part of the solution and part of change, but more importantly, they have the platform to do it. I mean, I always say every little boy under the age of 10 wants to be a ball player, you know, 95% of them until they realize that they're only going to be 5'7", and they'll never be, play in the NBA. But before their dreams are shattered, you know, all these little boys are looking up to athletes. I mean, more so than almost anyone else. And so sitting down talking to these guys and like you said, the majority of them are good dudes. They're trying to be good dudes. So if we can equip them to do that and we know the influence that they have not only on their team, but on their campus and eventually in the world when they're playing for a national league, like to me, that's, that's how you create real change. You identify the influencers and you get them to buy in to this new perspective this new paradigm. And before you know it, so does everyone else. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I just think back and flash back to when I was in college. I'll never forget it. I was a sophomore and I just started. And it was the first game of the year and our best player gets hurt. And the game ends and we're at like the local bar afterwards. And I'll never forget uh, a woman on the cheerleading team came up to me. who She's kind of like an older sister, I guess you could say. And she's like, um, Yogi, you can get any girl you want tonight. I was like, well, what are you talking about? Like, I was a pretty shy, dude. And she's like, well, your name was all over the loudspeaker. 
because I, I made a couple catches and whatever. And uh, yeah, and you did. My, yeah, you did. Yeah, but it blew my mind. I was like, what? Like, this is how it works. And then I can remember in, fast forward to like basketball season and asking like another girl, like, why are you talking to that guy? He was a basketball player. She goes, well, it's basketball season. And I was like, what wow. is happening right now? And to, to put to tie it all together, what I loved most was year one when you came and spoke to the quarterbacks around Nike's campus. And, you know, I got to paint a picture of everybody. When Alexis walks in, I mean, A, you're a showstopper, stunning. These kids are like, they're <laughs> exhausted from football. It's seven in the morning. We wake them up a half hour earlier to have this guest speaker. They don't know what it's for. And, you know, imagine a guest speaker in high school and you go to the auditorium and you're like, this sucks. Like, I just want to fall asleep. And, uh, and they were blown away. And I remember the way you ended it was, look, we're just asking you in the locker room when somebody's having a conversation, whether it's a girl or being inappropriate or whatever, just walked up to them and whisper in the ear, like, hey, bro, you know, like, we don't do that. And to me, that was like the biggest takeaway, um, because that's what um, the best athletes have, whether they're quarterbacks or wideouts or whatever, the center, um, it doesn't really matter. But I think when, when, you're, when you can play, um, you have this, it's not right or, I'm not saying it's right, but you have a larger voice in the locker room and it's knowing how to use it. Um, and we talk to athletes about their brands all the time. And we're seeing it this year on the Elite 11 Doc. It's actually chronicled about how, you know, popularity is just misconstrued by a lot of athletes. You know, some look as popularity as, well, I need to get more followers on social media. And when you talk to guys who have retired from the NFL or veterans in the NFL or just dudes in the league that are ballers, they all say the same thing. And no, popularity is making sure that the backup left tackle knows he can come talk to me. And I think that your talk and your protector message has really resonated with these guys. And all of a sudden it's become like the cool thing to do to be like, yo dude, like uh, we, we don't disrespect women. That's just not how it is. Cause I got a mom and a sister. So on behalf of elite 11, Alexis, I got to thank you for that um, because you are changing the game. And uh, I think you see it now when you go to colleges, because these kids are now graduating from this quarterback camp and playing in these schools that you're at. Oh, it's the best. When I come into school and one of my Elite 11 boys is in there, it's so precious. It's like <laughs> I get a huge smile and they like, they're like, I'm going to sit in the front row. It's, it's, yeah, it's the best. And, so, and honestly, that means so much. Thank you for sharing that. Well, it's the truth, you know. Um, but, but I do have this question about this. Um, and like, like I said off the top, I, I know you really well. and I'm going to try to ask questions I don't know the answers to. Um, I know that you've never, thankfully, uh, been a victim of, you know, some of the stories that you hear, right? Sexual violence, um, sexual assault, um, but you carry this torch, right? For women, whether you like it or not, you carry this torch now for men, whether you like it or not. What is it like to carry that when you haven't been through that situation? Like some of the stories that you heard at 19 when you started, I am that girl. And I'm sure countless and countless of stories you've heard over the last, what, 12 years now. Yeah, it's um, it's a privilege and it's a huge responsibility, honestly, to carry those stories. I think at one point I was subpoenaed for nine different cases for being the first outcry um, because, you know, I would come in and to these different schools and, you know, a girl would come up to me and say, I've never told anyone this before. And then, you know, I would, I would encourage her to, you know, take action and get justice and Anyway, so I think it's, it's definitely a heavy burden, but it's, it's such an honor. And, and I also think because I have been so blessed and I am such an anomaly 
that when I come in to these locker rooms that see the voices and the stories of hundreds, if not thousands of women who have shared their hurt and their heartbreak and their abuse and their assault and their harassment. And so walking in, I get to be this interesting hybrid where I get to carry them, but I'm not carrying the personal weight um, and the energy associated with being a victim. So I also, I think it allows me to be incredibly effective with these guys because I also am just as protective over these guys. And I have the luxury of being just as protective over these guys. And I have the luxury of like loving them and being huge fans because like nobody loves college ball more than me, you know? And so coming in and being around these guys, I get to have that kind of energy around them. And, and truly when I say, I believe that they are the cure to this problem, I mean that. And I think that they genuinely feel that from me, but I also do carry the weight of all of these stories. So I get to schlep them in with me because so many of these girls, their voices will never be heard. And so I think that I've been put in this really unique position to straddle the line between men and women, between boys and girls, and be this connector of, I want to share these stories with you because they matter. And simultaneously, I believe that, like, you can help be part of this solution. Um, It's a lot. It's hard, like, carrying the torch. I think it's kind of exhausting sometimes, and it's why I sit and watch five episodes of Sons of Anarchy in a row (laughs) on Netflix. You know, there's times when I have, you know, a big fat glass of wine and totally check out because as much as inspiring as it is to want to change the world, like, we are only ever but one individual. And, yeah, it's hard, man. Yeah, well, I know another situation that was really hard for you, and I don't want to get into the detail because um, we moved on, but the, the situation with the Lakers, and if anybody isn't familiar with it, you can just Google Alexis Jones and L.A. Lakers. Um, but you went through this scenario where you and two players, uh, multiple players, you know, you saw them and accused them of sexual harassment. Uh, they had a different story. Um, I'm curious about your process of going through that because you experienced what a lot of, celebrities experience in terms of shaming specifically on social media you experience what a lot of women have experienced in terms of wanting or not wanting to talk about something um, even though it wasn't nearly as dramatic as some of the stories that you've been told but also you experienced your tribe supporting you and like you referenced earlier and I am that girl it's almost a million people in 52 countries that's a lot of experiences happening at one time and as you just talked about you're just one individual trying to do stuff like how do you process that? Because I think that there's a lot of listeners that, okay, maybe not on the grandest of scales would go through something like that, but in their little world, it's a big scale. Maybe it's a high school and somebody disrespected them behind the bleachers, right? Or maybe it's in college and they're afraid to say something, or maybe they can ignite a group to support them and they don't really want that burden of responsibility. How, how did you process those three major things colliding at once? Oh, geez. Um, I mean, you were there front row, you know, it, it was a lot of tears, a lot of crying. And, and Brene Brown is one of my favorite authors. And I think one of the things that she articulates really well is the fact that we love stories of redemption, right? We love stories of like being on the other side of this insane adversity, like unbroken, like movies like that. We just cannot believe that this guy is still standing. 
Um, and she said, but one, one of the problems within storytelling and in films is the fact that we never really sit there in the space of like being face down in the mud. Like we kind of glaze over. We're like, and I was depressed, but now I'm feeling better. Or I got beat down, but now I'm back up. And I really think that, I mean, of almost anyone in my life, like you were front row for that. And one, the initial incident was jarring um, to have, you know, my mom left on the side of the road crying, um, obviously not knowing that these boys played for the Lakers. And when I posted something on social media, the immediate response of intense, disgusting, lewd death threats. So there was a lot going on for me. There was definitely, I understood the victimhood that happened when you're like, wait, what? what? Are you kidding? It's me. I'm the only chick out there, like, preaching on behalf of these guys, that they're great guys, and this is happening to me. And it feels so very personal in the moment. And the things that people are saying, of course, strangers and Internet trolls who you'll never meet and rarely come out of their basement. Um, so I think the first thing, and especially to make this relatable to other people who are listening, I think that whenever you have a moment like that in life where you're face down in the mud, and especially when it comes on the heels of any kind of shaming, right? You speak your truth. And this could be like you, you know, tell a girl that you're madly in love with them, and they're like, yeah, no, sorry. And you're like, oh, God, did that just happen? Like anywhere from that to like a very public scenario of obviously what happened with being the Lakers and every shade in between, I think first to realize part of my process was, one, you just have to sit there. You just have to cry and feel all of it because my instinct was to numb everything and not feel or internalize any of it. And one of the things Brene Brown always says is when you numb one feeling, one emotion, you numb everything. So when you're trying to numb pain or disappointment or heartbreak, you end up also numbing joy and ecstasy and all of the incredibly beautiful emotions that we want to experience. And so the first was shock and heartbreak. And um, I just sat there. I mean, I don't think I got out of bed for three days. You know, because I was calling you every 20 minutes, needing a pet talk and bawling over the situation of how could this happen to me? And then you realize, okay, I'm going to survive this. Right, You kind of have that moment of, as you said, your tribe shows up. And watching the amount of dear friends who showed up on social media and said, you don't even know this girl, this is crazy, you know, and defending me, like that feels amazing. It's really good to know who's in your corner. And oftentimes it takes, you know, the worst storm in your life, your greatest adversity to see who really shows up. And then I think there comes this moment there was for me where all of a sudden, not only did I realize I was going to survive, but that I was going to use this as fuel to only be stronger. And I mm -hmm. think that is a big distinction of, you know, defeat is temporary. And if you can realize that whatever kind of adversity you're going through, whatever kind of shaming you're going through, it's temporary. The moment it becomes permanent, then it's failure. But we're going to have defeat after defeat and like, oh man, I got knocked down on that one. And now thank God it's been a couple months and being on the other side of it, because of course you want to defend yourself. You know, I wanted to like 
all of these things of they don't know what they're saying. And, you know, I think being on the other side of it of like, oh, you didn't break me. You know, Mm -hmm. I tripped, I fell down, I was defeated, but I refuse. I am the only one who is capable of putting that defeat into the failure bucket when I accepted its permanency. And I refuse to do that. So being on the other side of it and also like, then that opens up a bizarre, like incredible invitation of gratitude for it. And I think that's like the final stage of the process for me was, arriving at a place where I am grateful for that experience because it rooted not only the work that I do into a very personal place, but, oh, my God, it only strengthened my why. You know, for, like, the things that I'm doing, the girls that I'm fighting for, and not just girls, but the people who have the courage to speak their truth, much less in a very public setting, and the people who are shamed for doing that. I've never had such empathy for them and like deeply understanding why less than 20% of girls ever say anything about their sexual abuse, sexual assault or rape. I get it. I really, really have internalized because we don't live in a society that's safe for them to share their truth. We don't live in a society that's really safe for a lot of people to share their truth. Um, Whether that's sexual preference, whether that is how they choose to, you know, whatever sex they choose themselves with. Um, I mean, you could take it to race and religion. I mean, there's so much discrimination that happens every day. And I think being on the other side of that kind of heartbreak and realizing that it's your choice of what you choose to do with it. And that, to me, is the opportunity and the invitation for empowerment, the recognition that a choice exists. Yeah. No, I love that. I mean, watching you go through it, the thing that I noticed the most was, and, and not that you did this beforehand, but you didn't you didn't identify with anything other than who you were, right? We tell the quarterbacks all the time, don't identify with the position. You know, you're not. And I could tell as you went through this, you weren't identifying with your foundation. You weren't identifying with the attention of the media. I mean, as you processed it from afar, I saw you really identifying with you in a beautiful way. And to hear you talk about it now, you talked about it to the quarterbacks. Um, I think that that's um, something impressive. And, and it leads me to the question of, you know, you're on all these lists, right? I mean, you're, you know, Fast Company's female trailblazer. You're on Oprah's, like, most impressive people list. You're one of the most inspiration, inspirational people, according to Dell. You go to the White House. You have all these cool experiences. Um, but who do you go to? Like, who's your mentor, if you have one? And you referenced earlier, like, you're, you don't pretend to have all the answers. And I love that about you. And, um, and, and you're, you're really uh, gracious about even how you communicate that. But I, I don't know who you go to. You know, like, do you, do you have a mentor? Do you have someone that um, you can talk to when, when you just don't have the answer? Yeah, I, I think that, and this may be come across as like a rote response, but I have a, anyone who knows me knows that I have a very, very unique relationship with my mom. That yeah. You know, when people say, like, my mom is my best friend. Yes, my mom is my best friend. But my mom and I are connected in, in a very, very special way. And I think that, you know, my mom's not on any of those lists, right? My mom um, is a paralegal. And, you know, she bartended at night. Um, and worked two jobs and went to night school and she was raising five kids as a single mom. My mom got pregnant at 16. She is one of the most hellacious 
you know, stories um, of growing up. And, and what's interesting is that she's a constant reminder of you learn the biggest, most important lessons through heartache and through adversity. And I think that because of how much heartache and adversity my mom has been faced with, that she is profoundly wise beyond any years. And she gets me in a way that is so transcends a mother-daughter relationship. And, you know, I truly believe that everyone has multiple soulmates and that it's not always romantic. And my mom is one of my soulmates. And I think her ability to understand, like, not only my career and my life, but to, like, some of the vernacular I often use is, like, to love me back to life in the moments in which I am the most scared and afraid and hurt and disappointed. Um, I would say that she is, oh, my God, I'm going to start crying, Um, a really incredibly precious human being in my life who constantly is my go-to on, am I doing good? Am I doing right? Could I be doing better? And her ability to love me exactly where I am as such a perfectly flawed individual and simultaneously to usher me into who she knows I'm capable of being. Yeah, she's, she's my go-to. I love that. That's awesome. Um, all right, we'll get you out of here in a minute. Um, I, I want to make sure we talk about what I think is uh, probably what I love most about you. Um, you're a crazy traveler, and and I love that. <laughs> and you're a solo female badass traveler. Like you've been to places I hope to go someday, and we talk about it all the time. Um, I've had a couple travelers on this podcast, um, but specifically, um, I'd love to know if you can, you know. Put it in a sentence. What brings you the greatest joy from exploring? And then secondly, why do you do it as a solo female? And, and how has that become something that you're not scared of? Because I talk to a lot of women that are like, I want to travel. But I just don't want to go by myself. And then when I go with friends, it sucks because they just want to do X, Y, and Z. So you've done it. And I think people will really enjoy your response. Um, I think what I love about traveling is that it, absolutely confronts and challenges my definition of normal. Um, growing up in America, growing up in Texas, I, like, very specific. And I think when I go to other parts of the world to see how they raise children and what their definition of relationship and marriage is, but, you know, time they eat dinner, right? You know this, like being in Europe, like it blew my mind that people didn't eat dinner until 11 p.m. And that they had, like, toddlers up. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, in America, my nieces and nephews are, like, in bed strictly by 7 p.m. And you're just reminded that the way that you do things is just the way that you do things. And that there's no right way to do anything. For me, it kind of blows the lid on the way in which I operate in the world. Like, it fundamentally confronts, like, my religion and my, you know, faith transcendent of religion and just overall how I choose um, to do things and why I choose to do things a certain way. So that's what I love about it. And then obviously, I mean, don't get me started on like the food and the sights and like just having my eyeballs like soak up things that I've never seen before. Like it's 
it changes me every time you know that. I mean, every time we come back from a trip, we're like a new version of ourselves. We like shed an entire layer, you know, and we're a whole new version. And I think that the reason I love to travel solo is because when you're with someone else, you know, it really prevents what I've found um, people from strangers from walking up and talking to you, right? People are much more likely to come up and talk to you if you're alone and it actually forces you to engage with people. Otherwise you're walking around solo the whole time. And so I love that um, it is scary that it's always uncomfortable, you know, to like go somewhere to eat alone. To, so it kind of forces me again out of my comfort zone. It forces me to engage with people. It forces me to be present. It forces me to be very, very, um, aware of my surroundings, especially as a woman traveling alone. It forces me to be very conscious um, of where I am and what time it is. And like those things are real things for women who choose to travel alone. But I think um, it also kind of reignites a love affair that I have with myself. Again, that's just like, I don't think that we do enough things purely to enjoy our own company. And I really enjoy my own company. And I enjoy doing what I want when I want because I want. And there's something that is wonderfully selfish about jumping on a plane, about having that level of independence, that level of confidence to go and see and try something new. And I'm a total addict. So, oh, my God, I mean, I could talk about this for two hours. You know that. We need an entire separate podcast just to talk about our love affair for traveling around the world. I love that. Okay, cool. So at the end of every conversation, I love asking you a few specific words and getting your instant quick reaction to it. Okay. The first word, um, competing. Am I supposed to give just one word answer? No, no, you can give give me a little nugget. Yeah, you can give me a little nugget, but we talked about it a ton, right? And you're a badass competitor, but how do you define it now? Because it's changed from when you were a kid and you were playing your brothers in the backyard. Yeah, I think, you know, something that dawned on me, and I'm going to try and make it fast because I know I'm verbose, but um, competing with myself, like that is, I think, what immediately comes to mind is that there is no competition outside of myself, and that's something that I love. Like it's a double-edged sword, right, is to be able to compete with myself at a level that keeps me hungry, keeps me out of my comfort zone, keeps me like striving for more, and being able to balance that with also – I'm perfectly exactly content exactly where I am today. Like that juxtapositional, like blow your brain if you're like trying to do both of those. But that's kind of my off the bat answer. How about uh, criticism? Criticism is painful. And criticism, my dad told me once, I remember um, I did a broadcast and I had the producer come back and give me like a ton of feedback, (laughs) which was not very good. And I called my dad crying And uh, in that moment, he was like, sweetheart, do you think that, like, you're special or unique because you don't like the way criticism feels? And I was like, wait, what? And he was like, nobody likes criticism. Like, and anyone who (laughs) says they do is lying. He was like, so can you be the person who can die to their ego and accept the criticism and take, you know, extrapolate the parts of it that make sense and it can make you better? Like, can you be someone who uses something that's painful and uncomfortable like criticism to be fuel because Mm. those are the people that's the difference between the good and the great. 
I love that. I hope every quarterback heard that one. How about politics? Ooh, I want to be in politics <laughs> down the road. I mean, look, it is, I mean, it's going to be the only F-bomb that I drop, but it's so fucked up right now that I feel like everyone, like, talks about politics is, like, it's so corrupt, it's so, and I'm always reminding people, like, politics is not, like, a Frankenstein, like, it's not, like, this, it's just human beings, and I think that there aren't enough good, integrity-filled, character-filled human beings inside a system that I think has become really corrupt, so... For me, I'm incredibly, ironically, inspired by the possibility of really shaking it up down the road. What makes you feel most alive? Traveling, hands down. I like that. That's a simple one. I've always described in these conversations that I think everyone has a flame. And sometimes our flame, it's like a campfire, right? And it's stoked and everybody's leaning in and around it and they're warming their hands up. And sometimes our flame is low and we need a new log and we need to flip it over and turn the ashes upside down. If you had to get outside of your body now, how do you hope people see your flame and how could you describe it? Wow. Um, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind, I'm like immediately judging myself of like, is this a good enough answer? First thing that comes to mind is like, I, if I could step outside of myself, like I would hope that it's the kind of flame that is contagious. Like I hope that people don't look at me and are like, she was amazing. She was so brave. She started all these companies. Like I don't want people to list the things that I've accomplished. And I'm like, that's just what I do for a living. You know, like I would hope that they were like, oh my gosh, her flame was contagious her passion, her enthusiasm, the way in which she chooses, you know, to live her life has only inspired me to live mine greater. I think Mm. that's how I want to be talked about. I want people to describe who I am and, and how that affected them, not what I did. I love that. And then finally, the last word, Alexis, is limits. There are no limits. They don't exist. I think that, you know, Obviously, given that we just lost one of the greatest fighters ever in um, Ali, and one of my favorite, his quotes is like, impossible? This doesn't, just like a man-made definition of small people who refuse to show up and like, go big or go home. Like, I think that limits are only a fabrication and paper tigers that exist inside of our heads. We started this conversation where you talked about the first story you remembered, which is amazing, right? It's about the Alamo and hearing it from your dad. Curious about the next story that you plan to tell. I don't think it's written yet. I don't know. Um, I think there's, I think the thing that inspires me the most is, you know, a lot of people when you're little and, you know, you're drawing, you're coloring in a coloring book. And I was always, I just wanted blank paper. It's like something my mom used to always say about me. Like you refuse to color inside coloring books. Like you always just wanted like computer paper. Um, And so I see like a stack of like blank paper that the sky's the limit. Whatever I I imagine. I love that. Well, Alexis, this has been uh, phenomenal. Um, I've loved it. I mean, we've, we've only talked for an hour and 25 minutes and we probably could easily do a couple more hours. Um, but I, I, there were so many cool nuggets that, that I took away, and I literally didn't know 
any answer outside of the Lakers situation um, because we kind of went through that. Uh, but, man, you, you've been a gift. I think people are absolutely love this conversation, and I want to make sure they know where they can connect with you and how they can get involved with your new program, which we touched upon, Protect Her. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, then go to protecther.com and, you know, we've, we're very sneaky, uh, creative with how we spelled it. It's just protect H E R one word.com. They can go there and check out some of the work that we're doing with, um, the boys in locker rooms. Then go to I am that If they want to check out what we're doing with girls all over the world. Um, and if they want a little more for me, then go to alexjones.com. I love it. And we can find her on all social media platforms. Make sure you check out A Brave Heart, another thing we didn't get to, but Alexa was just the executive producer of this award-winning film that will leave you moved, crying, um, cheering, smiling. It's phenomenal. So, um, Alexis, that was rad. I can't thank you enough. Uh, tell your husband, Brad, what's up, and uh, let's, let's do it again soon. And, and now you're on the hook. Now you got to have a podcast, and I'm coming on, okay? We're doing that. <laughs> Dude, I can't wait, except you crushed it so hard. Now it's intimidating. So I think I'll just leave you in the podcast world and hope that at some point you invite me back to talk about Survivor and traveling. Oh, we totally are. And we will make sure that all the links are in this blog post, including the documentary film, The Elite 11, uh, which Alexis is featured in for the third straight year. Alexis, we really appreciate it. Thanks for hopping on. Thanks, Yogs. All right. Lots of love. That is Alexis Jones from I Am That Girl, Protect Her. She's absolutely phenomenal. Um, I think that what I love about her is that I've seen this growth in Alexis over the years. You know, I've seen her truly go from, you know, in graduate school, literally my first friend in California, um, to creating this company, watching it grow, going through Survivor, going through the transitions after that. Um, and then, of course, uh, being a part of the Elite 11. I mean, this is awesome to you know, bring her in along with student sports and Trent Dilfer and Andy Bark and Brian Stump and all our entire team um, to allow her to talk to these quarterbacks. And as much as it's uh, great for the quarterbacks, it's awesome for the coaches. It's awesome for everybody involved and, and she crushes it. So uh, if you haven't seen it, check out the elite 11, you can go to elite11.com. You can find it on YouTube. Um, it's been on a bunch of different platforms as well this year's feature length documentary that uh that alexis jones is in so stay in touch keep hitting me up on social media about this podcast we've got some really fun guests coming i mean i can't believe it. it's almost football season which is going to be a totally different beast it's going to be awesome i'm jacked um this is this has been a phenomenal experience your reviews your notes uh your love is huge and of course uh, make sure you check us out on itunes we are also now on overcast which is a big deal i hear um, and of course, blog talk radio. And the way that we finish this thing off is the way that hopefully we start all of our days is a quick reminder that the only limits we have in life are the ones we set ourselves. And they'll get off. Peace.